If you happen to be in need of a new t-shirt, hoodie, sticker, journal, or magnet, and want to help support this podcast, why not kill two birds with one stone and visit our official merch store? Check out the ever-growing selection of designs inspired by Japanese history at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com. Thank you for your support. Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 5, Episode 10, The Reunification of Korea. Last season, we discussed the Silla-Tong War that ensued after the conquest of Baekje and Koguryo, as well as the emergence of Balhai, the mysterious Koguryo successor state. Taking up the mantle of Baekje before it, Silla dominated much of the waters around the peninsula with both maritime trade and an armed navy. Piracy continued to plague the merchant ships, and the kingdom of Silla knew it could not rely on either Japan nor China for any assistance. Relations with Japan remained cool, and while they managed to patch things up with the Tang dynasty after that little misunderstanding regarding who would rule the peninsula, the government of China was too busy constantly snuffing out regional rebellions and waging war against their neighbors to be bothered with a few plundered boats. The 700s started out as a promising time for the sovereigns of unified Silla. In spite of a few early stress tests, the monarchy stood fairly strong. The bone rank system was still in place, which determined a noble's rank based on how closely he was related to the ruler. This meant that the more important jobs were available to the king's close relatives, and that the lower-ranked nobles competed for marriage into the royal family, either for themselves or their sons. The sovereigns felt secure enough to institute reforms which would increase their own wealth and power, while effectively giving the court a pay cut. Previously, the upper nobility who had served in high government offices were paid in land, which they would then cultivate, much like the great Shoen estates of Japan. Under the new system, the land and its products would remain in royal hands, and the officials would be paid a yearly salary. This was unpopular among the aristocrats, and some even attempted rebellions, but these were generally put down quite swiftly. Like Japan, Silla also sent some of its scholars and monks to China to learn, study, and bring back new cultural wisdom which might benefit their society. One such monk named Hiecho famously journeyed all the way to India. Some of the commentaries and treatises penned by Silan Buddhists even became popular in China and influenced the development of Buddhism there. The schools of Zen and Pure Land Buddhism were growing in Korea during this time, which will both be discussed in greater detail in future episodes. During the second half of the 700s, however, things began to go very wrong for the Silla monarchs. The short-burning revolts of previous times were replaced by long-burning conflagrations which lasted years. The primary engine of these uprisings was a potent combination of overtaxed peasantry being led by disaffected aristocrats. In 757, the salary system for aristocratic offices was rescinded, 
and land as payment returned. This reversal is generally understood as a sign that royal authority was rapidly eroding. In 780, after two decades of declining central power and increasing reliance upon noble patrons, the reigning monarch of Silla, King Hiegong, and his wife were killed by a rebel army who stormed the royal palace. The period after this event was a long decline, featuring up-jumping relatives who assassinated the king to take his job, child rulers propped up by ambitious regents, bloody succession crises, and nearly every combination thereof. Nearly every monarch's reign ended with a rebellion of one or more noble clans. A similar trend to the one we observe at the close of the Tang Dynasty can be seen here. Weak central power, strong regional power, a series of violent successions, and puppet kings. To their north, the state of Balhai was continuing to develop from a loose confederation of tribal groups into a centralized state. King Moon of Balhai seems to have been a visionary monarch who also possessed the necessary political clout to make his dreams for his nation a reality. He sent envoys to Silla seeking a ceasefire between their nations and promoting trade as well. This may seem surprising given the general hostility that existed between Koguryo and Silla for so many centuries, but Balhai was still a fledgling nation in the 700s, and King Moon wanted to shift the political power away from ambitious tribal leaders and toward a central bureaucratic monarchy. He moved the capital several times in this interest, trying to keep any one group from gaining too much access to the throne. Balhai was a multicultural nation, consisting not only of Koguryo refugees, but also Khitan, Evenk, and Mohe peoples. Their land itself was generally cold and not particularly hospitable, and they bordered not only Silla, but also the large Goturk Confederation. King Moon's promotion of trade rather than hostility with these neighbors gave Balhai a small measure of security, and the nation became famous for its fine craftsmanship. Like the Japanese government, the state of Balhai organized itself in a fashion roughly resembling China. King Moon even founded a university based on that of Tang Dynasty China, and future bureaucrats would be trained in Confucianism as well as all the Chinese classics. King Moon reigned for an impressive 56 years until his death in 793. Longevity can be a valuable trait in a monarch, as it can lead to national stability in a growing nation like Balhai. This is what we believe happened under King Moon. When the great king's son took the throne, he was less able to steer the ship of state. Before the first year of his reign had passed, he was murdered by a group of court ministers, allegedly because of the abusive and violent temper that emerged when he took the throne. After him was King Seong, who died a few months after his coronation. Things may have been a bit precarious when King Gong took the throne next, but he managed a 15-year reign during which he promoted trade with China and Japan, while managing not to get himself murdered, as far as we know. Again, records of Balhai are spotty, and we hope that future discoveries will help us eventually fill in its many blanks. 
we don't know much about the early 800s, save that Balhai became very famous for its fine statues of Buddha, which it exported to Japan and China. Relations with Silla probably started souring here, as the southern kingdom was still struggling to keep everything together. Now that Balhai had stability, one particular king would attempt to expand its borders, and the constant warring in Tong China gave him the perfect opportunity. The Liaodong Peninsula had previously been an area of contention between China and Koguryo. Back in 699, the Tong court had appointed a new governor as protectorate general to pacify the east, which now resided on the Liaodong Peninsula on land that was formerly the western portion of Koguryo. Specifically, they appointed Go Diokmu, the grandson of the late King Bojong, whom you might remember was the last king of Koguryo, and gave him the title King of Joseon. We believe that Go Diokmu had similar ambitions to his grandfather. He hoped to establish an independent kingdom. The state he governed is called Little Koguryo by historians, and unfortunately we know even less about it than we do about Balhai. Because of the tumultuous events in Tong China during the late 700s, Little Koguryo had become an independent state, more or less by default. Again, we know very little about this nation, but its government was most likely a Chinese model, and its people almost certainly composed of ethnic Koguryo, as well as some Mohe and other Tungusic people. By some unknown combination of military campaigning and diplomacy, in 820, King Sion of Balhai successfully annexed Little Koguryo and extended Balhai's borders to the western waters of the peninsula. He also campaigned in the north and annexed territory there as well, gaining a reputation as Balhai's mightiest warrior king. This would prove to be Balhai's greatest extent, however, as their neighbors to the north would regroup and gradually sap the nation of its power. That is not to say that the Balhai state gave up without much of a fight. Some of the monarchs after King Sion would take on large-scale reforms that prevented the rise of independent chieftains, which was the primary source of Silla's discontent. The 800s gave Balhai its first standing army, as well as an increase in trade between themselves and Japan and China. Silla, meanwhile, was having a much more difficult time. There is one rather colorful character who enters Silla history during the 800s, a warrior named Zhang Bogo. Though he was born in Silla, his story begins in China, where many Sillan communities were thriving and growing on the eastern Shandong Peninsula. Possessing both personal charisma and martial prowess, Zhang Bogo served in the provincial Chinese military during the early 800s, and made a name for himself through bravery and likability. In 828, after a career filled with promotions and awards, he returned to Silla as a wealthy, decorated officer who was deeply troubled by the treatment of his countrymen living abroad in Tong China. Piracy was always a problem in the East China Sea, and the Shandong Peninsula was especially vulnerable to raids and kidnappings. He had already petitioned the Tong court about this, but the most they would do was outlaw the sale of Korean slaves in the official markets in 825, 
the king of Silla could not stand by while pirates made sport of his expatriate subjects, so he agreed to appoint Zhang Bogo as the commander of a brand new garrison called Chonghaijin. Located on one of the islands off the southern tip of Cheola province in the West Peninsula. He was granted 10,000 troops, and his mission was to make the water safe for Silla merchants to transport their goods. Zhang Bogo was extremely successful in reducing piracy and building up Silla's maritime peacekeeping force. Did he build a fleet from scratch and train the soldiers in the rigors of seaborne combat? Did he intimidate the pirates by raiding their hideouts, taking their leaders' heads, and selling the rest into slavery? Not quite. Admiral Zhang was a pragmatist at heart, and so his solution was practical and simple. He bribed the pirates into joining him. The pirates who menaced merchant ships and coastal communities in this period were largely outcasts, convicts, and runaway slaves who did not have another means of gainful employment. When the admiral offered them a salary that was more than they could expect from a year of thieving and ambushing, most of them happily accepted. Those who did not found themselves quickly outnumbered and were either captured by the newly appointed maritime defenders or fled for safer waters. The other members of the Silla ruling class did not generally think or speak highly of Admiral Zhang. He was a commoner, after all, and his lack of bone rank meant that he was unsuitable for such high office. They were right to fear his ambition, as soon he would begin to use his position at Chonghaijin to play kingmaker. When a series of succession disputes plagued the throne in the late 830s, one of the candidates turned to Zhang Bogo for help overthrowing King Minai, who had seized the throne after rebelling against King Huigong. Zhang Bogo lent his soldiers to the cause, and soon King Minai was killed in the fighting, and King Xingmu was put on the throne. Zhang Bogo was richly rewarded for his efforts, and the king had even promised to marry his daughter, which would give his descendants from that union their own royal bone rank. Six months after King Simmu took the throne, however, his plans were significantly delayed when he died. King Simmu's oldest son was enthroned that same year as King Munxiong. He granted a general amnesty for any recent throne-stealing shenanigans and kept Admiral Zhang in place as the naval commander. He promised to marry Zhang Bogo's daughter, but this union was repeatedly delayed as the king dealt with a rebellion of a noble named Hong Pil in 841. During this sort of waiting period, the other nobles succeeded in convincing King Munxiong that Zhang Bogo's daughter was not a suitable bride owing to her common birth and complete lack of aristocratic pedigree. In 846, Admiral Zhang rebelled after the king officially canceled the marriage. King Munxiong was terrified at reports that Zhang Bogo's forces were gathering and preparing to march on the capital. Kim Yang, a cunning viceroy who was the power behind Munxiong's throne, arranged for Zhang Bogo's defeat by using one of the officers who had formerly served under the admiral, but had been cast out of his service when he was caught trading slaves, which was against Admiral Zhang's rules. In addition to being a competent commander, Yom Zhang was known for being an expert swordsman. 
At Viceroy Kim Yong's orders, he presented himself to Zhang Bogo in an act of surrender. Admiral Zhang, being a practical man, was not about to waste a perfectly good commander to the executioner's blade. He invited him to join his army, which Yom Zhang was happy to do. As the preparations were underway, Zhang Bogo held a party, and it was at this party that Yom Zhang fulfilled his obligation to the viceroy by killing the troublesome warlord. The commandery at Chonghaijin was disbanded at this time. Whatever benefits the state had gained from the free movement of goods without fear of piracy, it wasn't worth risking another Zhang Bogo. The second half of the 800s was a fractious time for Silla, as independently powerful regional nobles would rebel, only to be quashed or occasionally to succeed at putting their preferred candidate upon the throne. Bribery and corruption were common, and a series of famines and other natural disasters disillusioned the peasantry. While this made for an unstable period filled with fighting and strife, the fact that the warlords were vying over control of the state at least kept everything relatively cohesive. Near the end of that century, however, the fractures between regional powers would finally result in a permanent split. In 892, an ambitious military commander named Gion Huon used the troops under his command to seize key cities in the southwestern province of Chola. Marshalling the peasants of that region to take up arms against the Silla government proved very easy, as the people of this region romanticized the previous age when the state of Baikje protected them from the depredations of the Silla kings. Wise enough to go with this flow, Gion Hon declared that Jola was now an independent kingdom and that Baikje had been reborn. Historians refer to this state as Later Baikje. While the court was still trying to get an army together, another rebellion erupted in 898 in the northern city of Kaesong. This region had suffered through several previous rebellions, and in 901, the various rebel leaders fought one another for sole control of the area. One leader emerged triumphant above the others, a man believed to be the son of one of the previous kings. He was a Buddhist fanatic known as Gungye, and he named his new state Koguryo. Historians refer to it as Later Koguryo. Its official name would be changed to Taibong after several name changes in the interim. I'll be sticking with Later Koguryo for simplicity's sake. The new status quo that emerged in the early 900s looked a lot like that of the 600s. Later Koguryo controlling roughly the northern half of the peninsula, later Baikje controlling the southwest, and what remained of Silla left with the southeast. This period is known as the Later Three Kingdoms period. Gungye, the fanatical Buddhist rebel leader who had founded later Koguryo, recognized talent in a young man named Wang Gyon. He promoted him repeatedly, and the two practically became brothers. Gungye's later behavior, as recorded in the historical record, however, was erratic and often tyrannical. He began calling himself the Maitreya, the Buddha of the future, and pronounced the death penalty upon anyone whom he thought opposed him. In 918, his four leading generals announced that his time as king had ended, and that Wang Gyon was now the ruling monarch. 
Gungnier was reported to have been killed later by a guard who mistook him for a thief. In the person of Wang Gyon, the leaders of later Koguryo found a potent combination of practical leadership and royal pedigree. He was reported to have been descended from a king of the original Koguryo, and he is remembered as King Taijo. He named his dynasty Goryeo, which was anglicized as Korea and is where the English name comes from. Balhai fell in 926, overrun by a massive army of the Liao dynasty who ruled the Khitan Empire. Refugees, both ethnic Koguryo and Tugusic groups, flooded into Goryeo, which was happy to resettle them in Pyongyang and other areas. The royal family of Balhai is believed to have fled north and established a state we call Later Balhai, which changed hands and was renamed many times over the next few decades. This is where we leave Balhai, as Later Balhai was landlocked and no longer a significant enough influence to warrant its conclusion in this podcast. Later, Baekje continually staged incursions into the remains of Silla in this period and was usually repelled or managed to win Pyrrhic victories which it could not sustain. Finally, in 927, King Gyon Hon led later Baekje's forces to an impressive victory against Silla, killing King Gyeonggai and establishing his own puppet king of Silla in his place. King Taijo of Goryeo arrived shortly after the battle with his own forces, but the army of later Baekje succeeded in driving them off as well. King Taijo himself narrowly escaped with his life, and only because a loyal general sacrificed himself to keep him safe. This early setback did not come to define Goryeo as a nation, however, and in 930 they managed a crushing victory against later Baekje at the Battle of Gochong. King Gyeonghwon faced considerable internal struggles in addition to the defeats which Goryeo began handing down. His sons were squabbling and factions were forming in the later Baekje court. In 934, he undertook a daring attempt to sack the capital of Goryeo, but his army was defeated when Goryeo forces intercepted them. In 935, things came to a head. The puppet king he had set on the throne of Silla surrendered his entire kingdom, what remained of it anyway, to Goryeo and abdicated. Gion Hon's oldest son, bitter at being passed over in favor of a younger brother, conspired with two of his other brothers against their father. Gion Hon was imprisoned and the young crown prince put to death. The old king managed to escape captivity and fled, ironically, to Goryeo. King Taijo probably deserves a bit of credit for his foresight in what came next. He set aside any desire to put his rival to death and instead welcomed him as a friend, provided him with servants and slaves, and kept him comfortable and happy. The dispossessed king of later Baekje suggested that he and King Taijo should lead an expedition into his former kingdom and deal with his usurping sons. The king of Goryeo thought that this was a marvelous idea, and in that same year, 935, they launched a massive invasion. The Goryeo army flooded into later Baekje, 
whose own army was quickly overwhelmed. King Singyom, the former king's usurping older son, tried to mount a defense, but the situation became very obviously hopeless, and so he surrendered. The old king Gyeonghwon died soon after, reportedly of an inflamed tumor. I would say, or was it murder here, but I didn't find any historians speculating about this, so neither will I. The Goryeo state was now the de facto ruler of the entire Korean peninsula. King Taijo showed mercy to the nobles in the conquered regions of later Baekje and Silla, keeping their ranks intact and offering them positions as local magistrates and administrators. I think that many of the noble families were eager to put the unrest and strife of the previous decades behind them, and found enough stability in Goryeo's Council of State to be satisfied with the new status quo. For now. King Taijo is a celebrated figure in Korean history, particularly for his magnanimous attitude toward his fellow Koreans who hailed from previously different states. The only people group he seemed prejudiced toward, however, was the Khitans. Goryeo condemned the Khitan conquest of Balhai and sought alliances with the enemies of the Liao dynasty. This is where we leave the Korean peninsula for now, in the capable hands of the Goryeo dynasty, who would govern the state for many centuries hence. Next time, we will return to the Japanese archipelago in 858, as the nation is about to enthrone the nine-year-old Emperor Seiwa. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan, visit the online store ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web ahistoryofjapan.com. 